list. Let's go to Mark 3. I, I was telling Daniel this morning um, that, in fact, I got to do something real quick. Hold on one second. Okay, these were my notes for today. Um, thank you. Thank you, Kyle. Mark 3, I was telling the Lord uh, yesterday morning uh, how, what's up, Dreer? Is this your last Sunday with us? We're going to pray. We're, don't let me forget. We'll pray over you before you leave. Is this anybody else's last Sunday? Oh, Rachel, where are you going? <laughs> Wait, for real, that way. Ah, University of Florida. Nice. Cool. Well, then we'll pray for both of you guys before y'all leave today. I'm glad y'all spent your last Sunday here and not the lake. Because that's what a lot of people do, you know? Everybody goes to the lake. All right. <laughs> Mark 3. I'm going to start at verse 20. I'm not going to open up with stuff I wrote because uh, I, I was telling the Lord um, yesterday morning, uh, I was like, man, it's been, a, it's been a while since you changed stuff up on me. Um, on a Sunday morning, and then this morning I got here, and um, everything changed. So, um, but these are usually really good. So, here we go. Uh, I'm going to talk about the kingdom today, which I talk about every week, but specifically, specifically the kingdom of God. Um, And so, I want to read this in Mark 3. Listen to what Jesus says here, and then we're just going to bounce around some places um, and see where it goes. Y'all good? You ready? Okay. Mark 3. Uh, then Jesus went home. It's really interesting right here. Rem- you got to remember, everything I'm about to read is taking place in his home, okay? Hometown, home area. Jesus went home, but once again, a large crowd gathered around him, which prevented him from even eating a meal. Listen to this right here. When his own family heard he was there, they went out to seize him, For they said, he's insane. Let me just read this one more time. Now, remember, we're talking about the Son of God, the Messiah, Christ. Okay? Verse 21. When his own family heard that he was there, they went out to seize him, for they said, he's insane. Talk about everybody leaving you when your family is calling you insane. You really got nobody. Okay, luckily I've never experienced that, so uh, that's that's one good thing. But the religious scholars, the religious scholars who arrived from Jerusalem, were saying Satan has possessed him. Man, I'm just seeing a lot. the The religious scholars, being where Jesus was, mean that they had to leave where they were and specifically go find Jesus. I mean, they had to go way out of their way to do what they're about to do. Religion, religion really does not like when the kingdom starts showing up. It'll go out of its way to make sure it stopped. The religious scholars who arrived from Jerusalem were saying, Satan has possessed him. He cast out demons by the authority of the prince of demons. Jesus called them to himself, and spoke to them using parables. Listen to this. It's going to sound real, real familiar, but how can Satan cast out Satan? No kingdom can endure if it is divided against itself. 
a splintered household will not be able to stand, for it is divided. So he's talking about a kingdom can endure if it's divided against itself. But then he says a splintered household will not be able to stand, for it is divided. So what just happened? Jesus' family, say like this, his household shows up and starts calling him insane. So Jesus is not only dealing with the religious people, now he's dealing with the family. Both. Okay? Verse 26, If Satan fights against himself, he will not endure, and his end has come. These are some of my favorite verses coming up. Jesus said to them, Listen, no one is able to break into a mighty man's house and steal his property unless he first overpowers the mighty man and ties him up. His entire house can be plundered and his possessions taken. I tell you this timeless truth. All sin will be forgiven, even all blasphemy they speak, but there can never be forgiveness for the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, for he is guilty of an eternal sin. This is because they said he was empowered by a demonic spirit. Okay, let me go back to uh, verse 27. What's up, guys? It's so good to see y'all. Is the baby here? Ah, okay, that's okay. All right, bring it back in. This is just family time. People watching online, just squirrel. Jesus said to them, listen, no one is able to break into a mighty man's house and steal his property unless he first overpowers the mighty man and ties him up. Listen to this uh, little um, footnote right here. Luke adds a phrase here. Luke adds a phrase here. If you read the story in the book of Luke, he adds this phrase. The stronger one, which is Jesus, overpowers him. Okay? So the stronger one is Jesus, who first defeated Satan in the wilderness ordeal, and then destroyed him by the cross and resurrection. Bruising his head, Jesus now, now, has Satan under his feet and will soon consign him to the lake of fire. This is what I want to talk about today. And the Lord really, really wanted to bring this up um, this morning as I was just spending time with the Lord. I got here very early and, uh, and was just spending some time looking over my notes. And the more I looked over, the more I realized this is not what he wants to say today. But what I do want to talk about and what I believe the Lord wants to talk about today is how little power the enemy has over us. Thank you, thank, thank you, thank you. All right, I, listen, I know people think I'm a heretic. If you do think that, I'd probably just go ahead and find somebody else to watch this morning. Um, but I'm gonna teach, can I teach the Bible? Can I do that today? I'm not going to teach religion, and I'm de- sure not going to teach American religion. Right? I'm going to teach Scripture. Y'all ready? Here's what I'm going to ask you to do, though. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. As I teach through some of this stuff, a lot of this is going to sound familiar if you've been here a long time. But as I teach through some of this stuff, I'm just going to ask for the grace, for the grace to hear this. And, um, and if you are iffy about something, go home and study. But I'm going to read. Uh, this is where I've kind of settled. If I can find at least six Scriptures, at least six, six Scriptures to back up something theologically, I feel real good about moving in that direction. That's just a general rule I have. 
if people think that's crazy, whatever. Um, but I definitely want to have Scripture to back this up. So let's go to Hebrews 2, and let me read what, uh, what the author of Hebrews, the writer, the preacher of Hebrews, has to say. Hebrews 2, and, uh, and I'm going to go Hebrews 2, I'm going to go to Romans 6, Colossians 3. I'm not going to read all of all of those, but I'm going to pick out some pieces. But I really want to point out some stuff that I think we're missing right now, specifically in the world of coronavirus, specifically in the world of injustice, specifically in the world of everybody living out of fear. I mean, literally everybody living out of fear. And a lot of that I totally understand in the sense of some people have pre-existing conditions and all that stuff. So I get being concerned. What I believe we really have to be careful in is that we don't allow concern to then give birth to fear within us of things that we are not in the kingdom of heaven susceptible to. And I'm not even talking about coronavirus at this point. I'm talking about fear at this point. Okay? If you are in the kingdom of heaven, if you're in the kingdom of heaven, you are no longer those who live in fear. We do not, I read this last week, we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. I'm not talking about a sickness. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the sickness behind what I believe is driving a lot of the fear in all the real sickness, which is fear. Just fear. Just fear. If you, if people, I, I stand by this, and no one does this. If people would get off social media for three weeks and stop watching the news for three weeks, I promise you, we get back to normal. I, 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 I put every, I wouldn't be a lot of money. I put every amount of money in my bank account right now that that would happen, because nobody, nobody's operating out of, definitely not operating out of intelligence. Again, I'm not talking about coronavirus. Put that on the side. I'm just talking about 2020, okay? No, so we're not operating out of intelligence because we're operating off of Facebook. You want to talk about fake news? Fake news is called Facebook. I'm, I'm serious. If you're taking your information, let me, just, let me just be a dad for a minute. Can I just be a dad? If you're, and then we'll get back to the to spiritual stuff. If you're taking... If you're taking your information from Facebook, I, I, I don't even know. I don't even know where to start. Somebody, somebody sent me a link. Let me just give you a little example. Somebody sent me a link uh, the other night. I don't know why people do this. Uh, to the little Dave Ramsey thing floating around about cash. How many people have seen that? That ain't real. That's not real. He, that's not a real thing. Do you hear me? And people will share it and share it and share it. Look what Dave Ramsey said. Look what Dave Ramsey said. Look what Dave Ramsey said. Look, look what the CDC said. Look what the CDC said. Look what the CDC said. It's called Photoshop. I can use it and make the CDC website to say anything I want. I can. It's called Photoshop. You could, in fact, if you get real good, you can tell when photos are Photoshop that people are sharing because they look weird. They don't look natural. Why am I saying this? Because we have moved, literally, we have moved from taking what we believe about everything from this into a place where we'll take it from Facebook before we'll ever open up the Scripture and see what God has to say about it. And this is His world. Facebook didn't create this. Yahweh did. But yet we'll listen to Facebook way more than we'll listen to this. A lot of people believe what they believe about God because of Facebook, too. That's why people are bracing for impact right now. 
Y'all, y'all love me? Okay. So I, if I see one more, listen, 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 listen. One more prophetic word, one more prophetic word that this is a sign that the end is here. If I, if I hear one more, that's, listen, I, and I, I say this real cautiously, but, but that's, that's called false prophecy. Will y'all hear me for a minute? That's what it's called. That is not my scripture. That's not yours either. There's nowhere in scripture that says the devil is going to get so powerful and so mean and so nasty that Jesus is going to get scared and start shaking in his boots. So because he's so scared, he's going to reach down and snatch everybody away because we sure can't defeat him. So the next best thing is to escape him and let him run throughout the world and do his thing and all that stuff. And then one day he's going to take an atomic bomb from the American arsenal and blow up the whole earth and start over. That's what most Americans believe all this is that, that's what most Americans believe we're heading into right now. You know what scripture says? Scripture says we're heading into the place where the wolf lays down with the lamb. Let me hello. You ready for this? You want to know how things get? Here we go. Then then the wolf will be subdued and live with the gentle lamb. The leopard will lie down with the gentle lamb. The young calf and the ferocious lion will be together. And as a shepherd drives his flock, a small child will guide them along. The cow and the bear will graze alongside each other. Cubs and calves will lie down together. The lion and the ox will eat straw. The nursing child, which is talking about a goat, will play safely near the rattlesnake's den and the toddler will stretch out his hand and shine light over the serpent. Whoo, man. That word hand is the Hebrew word yod, which can also be translated power. The toddler will stretch out his power and shine light over the serpent. On all my holy mountain of Zion... Nothing evil or harmful will be found. Uh oh. For the earth will be filled with the. You want a prophetic word? Here we go. For the earth will be filled with the intimate knowledge of the Lord Yahweh as water swells the sea. Let me break this down for a second, okay? The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint says this, says this, okay? For the earth is presently filled to the brim with the intimate knowledge of the Lord Yahweh. So the Hebrew says it will be. The Greek says it currently is. Either way, we're in a season where the earth is being filled with the intimate, not just knowledge, not just, hey, yeah, we've heard of God before. No, 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 no. That's not the knowledge he's talking about. He's talking about intimacy. He's talking about knowing the parts of him that no one else knows. The intimate knowledge of the Lord Yahweh will cover the earth as the waters swell the sea. On that day, the root of Jesse will be lifted up as a miracle. He's talking about Jesus as a miracle sign to rally the people. On that day, the Lord will extend his hand a second time to restore the remnant of his people from everywhere. 
He will lift up a banner among the nations and will gather the scattered Jews and assemble the outcast of Israel from the four corners of the earth. Does that sound bad? Does that sound like doom and gloom? Hello? This isn't a trick. This is not a trick question. Does it sound like doom and gloom? No. I, and I, I'm trying to figure out why people have such an issue with this. I haven't figured it out. Jesus, I'm about to prove it to you. Jesus on the cross, burial, and resurrection put an end to sin, to sin's kingdom, to the devil, and all powers of darkness. Does anybody agree with that? Be careful. All right. Hebrews 2, verse 5. Listen to this. God will not place the coming world of which we speak, new creation, under the government of angels, but the scriptures affirm, and now he's going to quote Psalm 8, what is man, man, talking about us at this point, what is man that you would even think about him or care about Adam's race? You have made him lower than the angels for a little while. You have placed your glory and honor upon his head as a crown, and you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. For you have placed everything under his authority. Okay? You have placed everything. If it's everything, how much is left? Nothing. Everything under his authority. Another translation, you have subjected all things under his feet. Okay? This is a restatement of the Genesis 1, verse 28, command to take dominion over the earth, subdue it, and be fruitful and multiply. This means that God has left nothing outside the control of his son, even if presently we have yet to see this accomplished. This is, this is just moving in me. I don't know about you, but it's, it, this is really stirring me up. But we see Jesus, who as a man lived for a short time lower than angels and has now been crowned with glorious honor because of what he suffered in his death. For it was by God's grace that he experienced death's bitterness on behalf of everyone. That's not where the story ends, though. Listen to this, verse 10. Now he towers above all creation, for all things exist through him and for him. And that God made him pioneer of our salvation, perfect through his sufferings, for this is how he brings many sons and daughters to share in his glory. Hold up. To share in his glory? I thought God wouldn't share his glory with another. Anybody ever heard that growing up? God will not share his glory with another. That is scripture, 100%. Here's the thing. You're not another anymore. You were until Jesus stepped in. And now that you've been mingled in with the Messiah, he doesn't look at you as another. He looks at you as him. Jesus, the Holy One, makes us holy. 
Jesus, the Holy One, makes us holy. And as sons and daughters, we now belong to the same Father, so He is not ashamed or embarrassed to introduce us as His brothers and sisters. For He has said, I will reveal who you really are. To my brothers and sisters, I will glorify you with praises in the midst of the congregation and my confidence rests in God. Talking about Jesus. And again, he says, here I am, one with the children Yahweh has given me. He's quoting Isaiah, but applying it to Jesus, the fulfillment. Verse 14, since all his children have flesh and blood, listen to this right here. Since all his children have flesh and blood, you and I have flesh and blood. So Jesus became human to fully identify with us. He did this so that he could experience death and annihilate the effects of the intimidating accuser who holds against us the power of death. I'm going to come back to that in a second. By embracing death, Jesus sets free those who live their entire lives in bondage to the tormenting dread of death. Does that sound familiar? Let me read this one more time. Just, just, just think in context of where we are today. Okay? By embracing death, Jesus sets free those who live their lives in bondage to the tormenting dread of death. For it is clear, he did not do this for the angels, but for all the sons and daughters of Abraham. This is why he had to be a man and take hold of our humanity in every way. He has made us brothers and sisters and became our merciful and faithful king priest before God as the one who removed our sins to make us one with him. He suffered and endured every test and temptation so that he can help us every time we pass through the ordeals of life. Let me read this one more time. One more time. Okay? He did this. He did what? Died. So that he could experience death. So that he could experience death. And annihilate the effects of the intimidating accuser. Annihilate. Do you know what the word annihilate means? To completely do away with. Well, brother, I just don't know about all that. Romans 6. Y'all go to Romans 6 with me real quick. Romans 6. Romans 6. So what do we do then? Do we persist in sin so that God's kindness and grace will increase? What a terrible thought. We have died to sin once and for all as a dead man passes away from this life. So how could we live under sin's rule a moment longer? Or have you forgotten that all of us who were immersed into union with Jesus, the anointed one, were immersed into union with his death? Sharing in his death by our baptism means that we were co-buried and in tune with him so that when the Father's glory raised Christ from the dead, we were also raised with him. We have been co-resurrected with him so that we could be empowered to walk in the freshness of life. 
For since we are permanently grafted into him to experience a death like his, then we are permanently grafted into him to experience a resurrection like his and his life, excuse me, and the new life that it imparts. Could it be any clearer that our former identity is now forever deprived of its power? For we were co-crucified with him to dismantle the stronghold of sin within us. This is present tense. So that we would not continue to live one moment longer committed, submitted to sin's power. Obviously, a dead person is incapable of sinning. And if we were co-crucified with the anointed one, we know that we will also share in the fullness of his life. I'm going to stop right there. I could keep going. Okay? Uh, in the ancient world, I'm going to give some notes real quick. In the ancient world, so New Testament church, in the New Testament church, supernatural, the idea of supernatural was not an alternate to what was natural. Okay? Hang with me. Today, if you say something is supernatural, immediately we separate something that's supernatural and something that's natural as two others. Right? So if I say something supernatural happened, you don't immediately think of the natural. You immediately think of something that is not natural. So, if I, so when I say supernatural, you think of ghosts, you think of haunted houses, or whatever, if you're in the world. If you're a Christian, when I say something supernatural, you, you think, a lot of people think, somewhere five billion miles out in space, he shoots a lightning bolt that happens to hit us, maybe, and we find favor for a moment. Right? That's supernatural. In the ancient world, supernatural was something that simply enhanced the natural. So when Jesus uh, did miracles, and when he did signs and wonders, and when he did all of this stuff, what he was not doing is doing something other than what was natural. What he was doing was enhancing what they had determined was natural. Listen to this quote. This is by St. Augustine. Lately, he's become one of my favorites, but um, he was an early church father around the uh, 300, 400 A.D. time period. Listen to what he says about miracles. Miracles are not contrary to nature, only contrary to what we know about nature. Miracles are not contrary to nature, only contrary to what we know about nature. So for Yahweh to bring his kingdom, which is supernatural. Let, let me even say this. Jesus' entire ministry... Death, burial, resurrection, all of that stuff was not to establish another religion. Okay? Jesus did not do what he did to simply establish just another religion. Jesus came and spoke exclusively about the kingdom. This is why this is unique. Jesus never used the word Christian. In fact, that wasn't used till later in Acts in Antioch when they were operating in such an anointing that the culture had to label them something other than them, which is where we get Christian. Jesus did not walk around telling people to repeat a prayer so they could be a Christian. Jesus walked around saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
they would not have heard that and thought he was bringing something totally new into the world. They would have heard that and understood that he was bringing the world into its designed intent, which is the kingdom of God. So for him to establish a kingdom is not for him to establish something new. It's for him to remove the veil off of those who had not been living in his kingdom. David established the kingdom. That's where Zion comes from. It comes from David in the Old Testament. Israel was God's people. He brings them out of Egypt, leads them through the wilderness, leads them into the promised land. They want a king. He gives them a king, Saul, horrible king. Then he gives them David, who was the beloved one that Jesus is called more than anything else, the son of David. He establishes a place for Yahweh to reign in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. And then his son comes behind him, Solomon, peace, and builds a temple for the Lord that becomes the intersection of heaven and earth. I've taught this before. If you go to ancient Israel and say, before Jesus comes, and you say, hey, where is on earth as it is in heaven? They would point you directly to the temple. Because in the Holy of Holies was where God was enthroned. The Ark of the Covenant was literally the throne of God. You with me? So the temple was the intersection between heaven and earth. So when Jesus comes... The intersection between heaven and earth was already there. It was just in a temple. Right? You with me? So he's not introducing something new. What he is introducing is access for everyone that he came in contact with. The poor, the broken, the sinful, the adulterous, fill in the blank. You have the same access that one high priest once a year has because of the kingdom that I'm establishing right now. He goes to the woman at the well, and she says, is where they worship right or is where we worship right? And he says, it don't matter because there is a time coming. In fact, it's here right now where worshiping the Father will not be a matter of the right place, but of the right heart. What is he doing? He's saying, I'm establishing a kingdom in the earth that of the increase of the government of that kingdom and of the increase of the peace that flows from the government of that kingdom, there will be no end. No end. Let me read this. Don't turn there real quick because i got a lot of places. In Acts 3.21, Acts 3.21, I have no notes this morning, so I'm just flying except a couple of Bible verse references um, and quotes. Acts 3.21 says this. Let me back it up to 20 and read this. Okay, I've read this before. I just want uh, how does how does what I'm about to read that Peter is preaching? How does what I'm about to read fit into how you view the end? Listen to this. <clears throat> now you must repent and turn back to God, so that your sins will be removed, so that times of refreshing will stream from the Lord's presence, and He will send you Jesus the Messiah, the chosen one for you. Okay. At this point, he's talking about the second coming of Jesus. He will send you the Messiah. You ready? The chosen one for you. He must remain in heaven until when? The restoration of all things has taken place. He will send you the Messiah. He will send you the Messiah 
who must remain in heaven until everything is restored to its original design. So why do I care about the world? We were joking about this this morning. Every time I mention global warming, people around here get so mad. I get more emails about global warming than anything else. Well, brother, you know that's a scam. I don't care if it is or not. This is my planet, my planet, and your planet. We should care about the planet more than atheists. Are you with? I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. We're in the South, and nobody cares. But I'm telling you right now, that's, you know the reason why the South is in bondage? Because nobody cares. So while we're going around filling up churches and getting people to repeat the prayer, everybody outside of the church is saying, this is our globe that we live in and our kids are going to live in. Maybe we should take care of it. And we're sitting in here talking about how the Lord wants to blow everything up. And that's why I say the, a, lot of, a lot of times outside those doors looks a lot more like Yeshua than inside the doors of his own house. That's why he goes in Malachi and starts talking about, I'd rather you not even show up and offer anything because what you're offering me is detestable. I don't even like it. So keep it. You have robbed me. That's what he tells Malachi. He says, you have robbed me. And then they say, how have he robbed you? You've robbed me through tithes and offering. He's not just talking about money at this point. He's talking about the offerings that they would bring in worship to God that they had withheld, and he's coming to Malachi with the warning that says, if you keep doing what you're doing, you are not going to end up in the place you think you're going to end up. Unless the hearts of the sons are turned back to the fathers and the fathers are turned back to sons, I'll bring a curse upon the land, period. New Testament closes, and there's nothing for 400 years. Why? Because he wasn't joking when he, was, when he said, I'm done with this. Y'all going to bring me your sick calves that you don't even want and you're not even going to use? Keep it. But let me just bring some context to this. I'm just flowing, so y'all just hang with me, okay? I love, I love this. So in the Old Testament, this is how a tithe would look. You would have flock, you would have fruit, you know, whatever you grew. And what you would do is you would take the first and the best of what you had and you would bring it as an offering to the Lord. That's what you're supposed to do. So uh, we have um, some flowers that Veda's growing. It's a really bad example, but it's the best way I know how to do it. We have some flowers that, that are growing. And we have four pots that she has planted these flower seeds in. Um, so a few days ago, the first pot just those things just shot up like crazy. I mean, they're almost like full grown at this point. The other three pots, I can't even see like shoots. Probably user error, if I'm being real. Um, but anyway, the equivalent to this would be us taking the first pot that's fully grown, taking it, and then bringing it to the Lord and saying it's yours. It's the first and best of what we have, right? If I uh, lived on a farm, if I lived on a farm and we grew squash, all right, the first and best crop of what I got out of that squash, I would take and I would give it to the Lord and I would never touch it. So that's how that worked, okay? Same with animals, same with everything else. What they had started doing, I got to get this thing out of the way. What they had started doing was they would take animals or crops or whatever. 
that were, let's say animals, that were sick and they were going to put to death anyway, okay? Back then, if they had a sick animal, maybe he was, maybe he was, uh, had a broke leg or, you know, whatever, that they weren't going to use, because they were going to put it to death anyway, they would take that to the temple and offer it up to God because they didn't need it. So they were literally giving God their leftovers. Let me tell you what that looks like in modern day terms. Let me tell you what that looks like. When we approach God as if, if I got time, I'll do it, that's called bringing our leftovers. Mom, why does it get so quiet? Y'all don't do this. I don't think. Right? How does that look like my, if, if I got enough time for it, I'll be there. If, if they cancel Lake Day, I'll be there. I mean, feeling, as long as I don't have to work, I'll be there, brother. And, and I get it, but by definition, that's called your leftovers. If something else gets priority over what he gets, you're by definition giving him your leftovers. And the reason we're in the mess we're in today in America is because we've become so accustomed to just simply giving God what we have left and nothing else that we wonder why we're not encountering signs and wonders and miracles and glory to glory and our nation being saved and justice being established. And all. Why are we not experiencing that? Because the ones who were called to bring that into the earth are not being manifested as sons and daughters of God because that requires you to first die to every single thing that you held on to in your identity before Christ so that you can be resurrected with Christ and co-seated and now operating as Christ in the earth. So, so people, so people in, in uh, China or India or Iraq or wherever you want to say are being put to death for this. So you know the ones who are in the churches today? or who were in the churches today, I guess they're behind us, in front of us. They're, they're the legit ones. Because they might die for this. We live in a country that is free, that nobody's putting us to death for this. So we've taken that and we've said, you know what? This is easy. And so we've created what I call convenient Christianity. Here's what convenient Christianity is. It's like you're driving down a road and you have so many options to eat that whenever you're hungry, you stop and eat somewhere and then you get back on the road and you never stop in the restaurant to sit down and eat because you have all these options. Just keep driving. I don't want McDonald's, so I'll get Long John Silver's. I don't want Long John Silver's, so I'll get, you know, whatever. And you keep you're driving and driving. Who, who still eats Long John Silver's? We mentioned that last night. That's why I brought it up. Their fish is so good. We don't even have a Long John Silver's, do we? We do have a Captain D's. So who said yes? We do have one? I don't know if we do or not. Nobody should eat there. Um, right, Tim? Literally no one should eat there <laughs> if we do have one. But here's my point. My point is because we have so many different kinds of the same thing, food, we live our lives feeling like I've got to feed what I want because I've got so many options. In China, you got one option. You either preach the gospel, believe in the gospel, die probably, possibly, put in jail, or you just don't be a part of this. So nobody's showing up saying, man, they didn't play my song today. Nobody's doing that. They can play whatever song they want. I'm here for him. I don't care what you play. 
right? And so they're encountering Jesus walking into their living rooms, standing in front of them saying, follow me, and they leave everything and follow him. That's what they're encountering. We're encountering a mass movement of people who can say the same prayer. And that's not a knock. I'm just telling you, we have stopped so short of what we were designed for and then gotten comfortable in it that we don't even recognize the poverty of what we actually believe in. This is broke gospel. This is impoverished gospel that we're going to walk around and feel like hope and joy and peace is something we got to convince ourselves of when Jesus did not die for us to just walk around and try to convince ourselves we're happy. He died so that we could walk around as so full of the Spirit that even our shadow starts to fall on people and they're brought into their original design. Healing was never meant to be a thing that Jesus walked around and said, I healed all these people. Healing was a side effect of the fact that Jesus was bringing creation back into its design order. So when he walked through somewhere and somebody had an illness, he didn't point them out and say, you know what, be healed so he could show everybody he could heal people. He walked around and healed people so that they could be brought back into their original design as a first fruit of what creation is actually going into, which is being brought back into its design. Man, I feel this. Do y'all feel this? So the earth around us, the earth around us is spinning in chaos right now. Not because of the devil, but because of an absence of sons and daughters. Okay, Romans 8. Romans 8, Romans 8. Let me just just read this. I quote this all the time. Let me just read it straight from the book. Paul says, this, this is in my opinion, Romans 8 is the most crucial chapter of the entire Bible, Romans 8. Uh, Verse 18, I am convinced that any suffering we endure is less than nothing. I am convinced that any suffering we endure is less than nothing compared to the magnitude of glory that is about to be unveiled within us. Do y'all hear this? This is Paul who was beheaded, by the way. I am convinced that any, any suffering we might endure is not only nothing, it's less than nothing compared to the magnitude of glory that is about to be unveiled within us. Now listen to this. The entire universe, this is cosmos in the Greek. The entire universe is standing on tiptoe, standing on tiptoe, which the Greek word here means intense anticipation. The other translation could be anxiously anticipating what is about to happen. Okay? So the entire universe is standing on tiptoe, yearning to see the unveiling of God's glorious sons and daughters. For against its will, the universe itself has had to endure the empty futility resulting from the consequences of human sin. You're in my sin. But now, now, with eager expectation, all creation longs for freedom from its slavery to decay and to experience with us the wonderful freedom coming to God's children. To this day, We are aware of the universal agony and groaning of creation as if it were in the contractions of labor for childbirth. And it's not just creation. We too, 
who have experienced already the first fruits of the Spirit, also inwardly grown as we passionately long to experience our full status as God's sons and daughters, including our physical bodies being transformed. Do not make that about a ghost. You hear me? Like, he's not talking about you becoming a ghost, Casper. Okay? <laughs> I like making a joke of it because it is a joke. We, we passionately long to experience our full status as sons and daughters, God's sons and daughters, including our physical bodies being transformed. He's talking about resurrection. For this is the hope of our salvation. This is the hope of our salvation. What is the hope of our salvation? Getting away? No, 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 no. The hope of our salvation is that us and creation together with us might come out of its futility and out of its decay and be brought into the fullness of freedom, which is freedom from decay. That is the hope of salvation. So what did, what did Jesus do when he died? Okay, I just, I just read it in Romans 6. What did he do when he died? When Jesus died, he put an end to the monarch of sin. Romans 6, I just read it. Sin is a dethroned monarch. He did away with sin. So the issue that I have with people saying that coronavirus is the devil, here's my issue, is that if Jesus in Matthew 28 says, I took the keys to death and the grave, I'm holding the keys. I wish I had my keys up here. It would be a lot better, but it's okay. It's, it's all good. Thank you, Alex, for the help. Um, he said, I've got the keys. What does that mean? I've taught this before. I have a key to my house, and I have a key to my car. Most of the time, I lose it. So thank the Lord for Jordan. But I have a key to my house and a key to my car. Why? Because I own them. Do you know why you don't have a key to my house? Because you don't own it. So could you get into my house right now if I weren't there? No. I mean, I guess you could break a window. But do you know what I'm saying? Why? Because I'm the authority over what I own. It's my house. It's my car. Therefore, enemies can't get into my house unless I let them. Hello? So Jesus says, I've got the keys to death in the grave. Therefore, go. Not just go. Therefore, as in, I've got the keys, so now that I've got the keys, go. Why? Because everything that they were susceptible to before crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, they were no longer susceptible to. Primarily, I'm talking about sin and the effects of sin and death and the effects of death. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through Him the world might be Destroyed, saved. Why am I so passionate about this, and why do I talk about this? Because I know people, people hate when you talk about new creation. Hate it. I don't know why, but people like the idea of escaping a lot better than restoring. I still haven't figured that out. This is hope. This is hope, what I'm talking about. Okay? So the reason that the world, the world was given to us with the command to go and make disciples of all nations is because we have tasted the first fruit of new creation life, 
resurrection. And because we've tasted that, we become the mustard seed that is planted and grows until it becomes the biggest bush in the garden that trees come and put their nest in its branches. I taught this last week. He says the kingdom, Matthew 13, the kingdom of God is a mustard seed. It's a mustard seed, like a mustard seed, that when it is planted, when it's planted, it grows until it becomes the biggest bush in the garden. So big that birds begin to put their nest within its branches. Now, why would Jesus talk like that? Because how we have thought is when Jesus rose again, the kingdom was at its highest. It was at its height. It was at its climax. And now over the years, it's slowly gotten smaller and smaller and smaller and irrelevant and irrelevant and irrelevant. And now we're just barely holding on by a thread. That's not what, Je- what Jesus said, is that the moment he rose again was the smallest the kingdom would ever be. Are y'all with me? I know, I know this is a lot. I just... The, the reason that, that we are where we are today, the reason we are where we are today, not talking about everything going on in the world. I'm just talking about the state of God's people. The reason we're here today is because somewhere along the line, somewhere along the line, we convinced ourselves that it's a lot easier to get out than it is to bring in. Sal- salvation was never about you getting to heaven. It was always about you getting heaven to here. I believe heaven's going to be great. I re- heaven is going to be awesome. What's going to be even greater is when that reality and this reality fully collide. And what John says, behold, I saw a descending from the heavenly realm, a new heaven and a new earth. The old order was gone and the new was here. Y'all looking at me like I got three heads. Let me, let me read Colossians 3 real quick. Colossians 3. Then I'm done. I'm going to just talk for a minute and then we'll be out of here. That's the beauty about me not getting to my notes today. Colossians 3. Verse 5. Live as one who has died to every form of sexual sin and impurity. Live as one who has died to diseases and desires for forbidden things including the desire for wealth, which is the essence of idol worship. Live as one who has died to diseases and desires for forbidden things, including the desire for wealth, which is the essence of idol worship. When you live in these vices, you ignite the anger of God against these acts of disobedience. That's how you once behaved, characterized by your evil deeds, but now it's time to eliminate them from your lives once and for all. Anger, fits of rage, all forms of hatred, cursing, filthy speech, and lying, lay aside your old Adam self with its masquerade and disguises. For you have acquired new creation life which is continually being renewed into the likeness of the one who created you, giving you the full revelation of God. New creation life. I do want to talk about this um, while we're here. I want to talk about this idea, and this is where I want to finish up. 
of some of the stuff I was going to get into today, but as the Lord just on the fly is tying some stuff together, of having, this is the phrase I call it, prophetic eyes. Having prophetic eyes. What that means is, is, and it's a super immature theological saying, I guess, but having prophetic eyes is seeing things the way God sees them in the context and timing God sees them. Seeing things as God sees them in the context and timing that God sees them. Are y'all with me? Just hang in here for a moment, okay? So Abraham, in Hebrews uh, 11, Abraham gets the call to leave Haran and go to a place that he was not told where he was going. But in that call, in Genesis 12, the Lord tells him, he says, I want you to leave your father's household. I want you to go to a place. I'm not going to tell you where it is. I just want you to follow me. But let me tell you something. I'm going to give you children like the stars in the sky, the sands on the beach. I will make your name famous across the globe. Everybody who blesses you will be blessed. Everybody who curses you will be cursed. I will bless you. I will be your God. He gives them this massive promise but it was all preceded by, I want you to leave the familiar and go where I will show you. The Hebrew text could also be translated, I want you to leave Haran and go find yourself. This is Abraham, okay? He leaves Haran, follows the Lord's leading all the way to Canaan. He gets to Canaan. He surveys the land that the Lord promises him. And then by the time he gets to his death, doesn't own one acre in the promised land and has one son in the line of the promise that you'll have sons like the stars in the sky, sands on the beach, and it's Isaac. Now, I've said this the past few weeks, but this is really, really stirring in me lately. When you look at Abraham, when you look at Abraham, what caused him to continue to live by faith? The Lord did crazy things with, her, uh, with Abraham. Like, for example, when Abraham was 75, that was Genesis 12 when he got the call to go, and he's going to give him kids like the stars in the sky sand on the beach. He was 75. In that culture, somebody at 75 years old having a baby wasn't impossible. It was doable. So when Abraham's hearing this call at 75, I'm going to give you kids like the stars in the sand on the beach, he's got to be thinking, I mean, I'm kind of old, but I guess I can do this. It's not until he gets to almost 100 years old that Isaac enters the picture. And on the way, he tries to short-circuit the process by getting in bed with a slave and having Ishmael because he wasn't waiting on the timing of the Lord. So what happens when we get antsy? And we start looking at things like we think they should be rather than having prophetic eyes to see things as God thinks they should be. We start getting in bed with things we were never designed to get in bed with. So, he's on his way. 100 years old. He has Isaac. And Isaac is the only son in the line of the promise when Abraham dies. Was God faithful? Yes. Yes. Because Abraham was not looking in front of him at what was going on around him. 
Abraham was looking forward to a kingdom city that was going to be established because of his willingness to go when he knew he may not ever see it in his lifetime. The monarch butterfly. Anybody remember me talking about this? Wow. Okay. The monarch butterfly migrates from Mexico to Canada. Mexico to Canada. Here's the really interesting thing. It takes four generations for the butterfly to reach Canada. Do y'all, y'all hear me? Migrate from Mexico to Canada. It takes four generations. So one generation has to start the journey knowing they'll never make it. The next generation picks it up and starts the journey knowing they'll never make it. The third generation picks it up and goes the journey knowing they'll never make it. The fourth generation flies into Canada. Had there not been three generations before the fourth that were willing to be nothing but the God for a legacy to make it one day, the legacy would have never made it. And the reason our legacy isn't inheriting the things that we were designed to inherit is because generation after generation after generation have settled for, I've got to see this and this and this and this in my lifetime to make a name for myself, rather than I need to humble myself under the mighty hand of God and trust that he will exalt me in due time, which might be my great, 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 great grandkids. So, so Joshua leading the children of Israel, you could say it like this, Joshua leading the children of Abraham into the promised land was the equivalent to Abraham owning the promised land. It was his legacy. In fact, Abraham's legacy gave birth to the Christ who inherited not just a plot of land in the earth, but a kingdom of the promised land in the entire earth, which would soon become the new creation. But listen to this. Listen to this. In Hebrews 11, verse 8, listen to what it says right here. Faith motivated Abraham to obey God's call and leave the familiar to discover the territory he was destined to inherit from God. So he left with only a promise, only a promise, without even knowing ahead of time where he was going. He stepped out in faith. He lived by faith as an immigrant in his promised land. He lived by faith as an immigrant, as a stranger in his own promised land, as though it belonged to someone else. He journeyed through the land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, who were persuaded that they were also co-heirs of the same promise. His eyes, listen to this right here, his eyes of faith were set on the city with unshakable foundations, whose architect and builder is God himself. Sarah's faith embraced God's miracle power to conceive even though she was barren and past the age of childbearing for the authority of her faith rested in the one who made the promise and she tapped into his faithfulness. She tapped into his faithfulness. In fact, so many children were subsequently fathered by this aged man of faith one who was as good as dead. 
that, ha- that he now has offspring as numerable as the sand on the seashore and as the stars in the sky. What the author of Hebrew is saying is Yahweh has fulfilled Genesis 12. But he did not do it like Abraham probably thought. We're at this point, we're talking about thousands and thousands of years later. These heroes all died still clinging to their faith, not even receiving all that had been promised them. But they saw beyond the horizon the fulfillment of their promises and gladly embraced it from afar. They were all, excuse me, they all lived their lives on the earth as those who belong to another realm. For clearly, those who live this way are longing for the appearing of a heavenly city. I'm going to hit that in just a second. We're almost done. And if their hearts were still remembering what they left behind, they would have found an opportunity to go back. Are y'all awake? Y'all still with me? Barely. Just kidding. But it's okay. They couldn't turn back for their hearts were fixed on what was far greater, that is, the heavenly realm. For clearly those, verse 14, clearly those who live this way are longing for the appearing of a heavenly city. A heavenly city. That word heavenly is talking about a characteristic. So what he's saying is a city that is of heaven. Another way you could say that, on earth as it is in heaven. They were looking forward to new creation territory that the foundations of the city were unshakable. Why? Because if their hearts were still remembering what they left behind, they would have found an opportunity to go back. Uh, Daniel, can you come up here? This is where I want to stop just for today. I read a lot of scripture because what I really feel the Lord wants us to do in this season is one, sure not take it for granted. But two, there are so many different aspects of our society that the church should be answering. Okay? We do a really good job of pointing out issues. We do a really bad job of answering those issues. Great job. We do a great job of pointing out injustice. We do a bad job of providing the answer for the injustice. We do a great job pointing out coronavirus and everything going around with that. We do a horrible job about providing the answer. When the church was given the authority to provide the globe with all of its answers. Why? Because the intimate knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Monday morning, I was spending some time with the Lord. And he began to talk to me about something that uh, I believe has really shaped a lot of what I've been feeling over the past week. And he began to say this. And I would just ask you to have ears to hear this. The Lord, the Lord is not primarily concerned with one particular country. In fact, he he, he said it like this. He said it like this. His concern is not America, it's the globe. His primary concern is not America. We, we, we have bought into the idea that America is God's 
you know, special thing. And even if it comes at the detriment of the entire world, he's going to give us all of our riches and prosperity and glory and all this other stuff. So that's kind of what we've said. Because nine times out of ten, what benefits us sometimes benefits us at the detriment of other people. God's primary concern is his whole creation. So there's going to be things that have to be shaken, not just in Iraq with ISIS, and not just in China, and not just in Asia, and not just in Australia. There are things that are going to have to be shaken here for the globe to finally step into what it was designed for. The, and Yahweh brought me back to this promise he gave me way back in the beginning that he was going to use this to establish not the third great awakening, the last great awakening. Not because it's going to end and not because we're going to escape, but because it's going to become so glorious that it never ends. So we have got to start being a people who should be concerned about the, the ones around us, but we really should be concerned with creation. Let me say it like this. We, we, we should get angry. No, we shouldn't get angry. We should get passionate about establishing justice in America. But we better not stop there. Yeah, right? So, so when a mosque, I'm going to steal this from some, one of my spiritual fathers. When a mosque gets blown up in Pakistan, what does it do in us? Nothing. They didn't believe in God. I mean, it probably should have happened anyway. Am I right? Hello? Hello? Yes? We don't, we, we don't do anything. Why? Because all we're concerned about is what's going on with us. He did not call us to be concerned about what was going on with us exclusively. He was called, we were called to allow what has happened within us to become the seed for new creation, which is not exclusive to America. It's exclusive to the globe. For God so loved the cosmos. So he's concerned with what's going on in Colombia, but he's also concerned with what's going on in the jungles of Africa that don't have food to eat. Do you hear me? And so we've got to be a people that if we're going to bring the kingdom into the earth and we're going to stand for the things of the kingdom, which we should, then we cannot stop with what just affects us. We've got to keep going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper until the intimate knowledge of the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. When coronavirus was in China, we didn't care about it. When it got here, we royally cared about it. Why? Because it was never about humanity. It was always about what affects us us and I'm telling we've got to get the view the Gentile let me just preach man yeah I just feel preaching right now all right so y'all just hang with me y'all just hang with me some of y'all are so mad at me right now and I that's fine it's fine I'm talking about new creation that's what I, I that's I am here you know how this church started Five years ago, I was laying in my floor in our apartment at Lauren Ridge. You might know where that's at, right off the Lexington exit. Okay, probably don't even know. But laying in my floor in our apartment, 
early in the morning when no one knew what was going on in my life. I wasn't sharing this with people, and yet I was encountering the presence that was reshaping everything I viewed about the culture, about the earth, about God, about heaven, about new creation, and he was bringing me into the inheritance that I was designed for, and no one knew what was going on. And that seed moved beyond that that about a year and a half or two years later started affecting people around me, friends, my family. And here we are five years later doing church in downtown Columbia for a handful of people in this room. This started five years ago with one man in, a, in, a, in the floor of an apartment. This is how the kingdom grows. It's glory to glory, to glory, to glory. So I began to taste glory, which gave people around me access to taste glory, which gave people around them access to taste glory, which then gave access to you to taste glory, which then gives access for wherever you work and the people you're around to taste glory, and the kingdom begins to express. That's what glory to glory means. We're moving from one level of glory to another level of glory, to another level of glory. And the, the way to eternal life is narrow and small. The gate and the way is narrow and small. But I choose to believe that that way can become so glorious that people start to shove themselves down the way that is uncomfortable and causes them to leave everything behind and causes them to die to everything they used to hold on to and view as success because the narrow way leads to a level of life that is life to the full and joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's what I choose to believe we're going toward. That very few people find. When Jesus says that, when Jesus says that, he's looking at a group of people that no one thought he was who he said he was, including his family, which is exactly why he says, small is the gate, narrow is the way that leads to eternal life, and only a few of y'all going to find it. However, we also get verses like, God put eternity in the heart of every man, and it's God's will that no man should perish. How do you marry the verse that it's God's will for no man to perish with the idea that the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to eternal life. How do you marry those two? It's called new creation, where the glory of the Lord begins to explode in the earth, where people start to choose His glory and His way over the glory that we earned on our way. So we haven't been building His kingdom, we've been building ours in the name of His kingdom. Y'all understand this? We haven't been building the kingdom of God because if we were building the kingdom of God, we would not be dealing with the issues we're dealing with today. So we haven't been building his kingdom. We've been building our kingdom. And we slapped a label of God on the name of our kingdom, but really it's our kingdom. So what he's going to have to do is he's going to have to first come and tear down all the kingdoms that we have built that aren't his kingdom first. And then he's going to have to plant some seeds in the ground that it will take time for them to grow. And are, like, are you okay with that? At what point, at what point do we get to the place where we say, you know what? If it costs me everything. I mean, at what point do we get to that place? At what point do we move beyond 
what I can accomplish and what kind of name I can make for myself in America and move beyond that, which I'm thankful for those opportunities. But at what point do we get beyond that into the place where it says he and he alone is glorified? He must become greater and I must become less. When, when do we get there? Because that is the first step to all of this. I can just, I feel, I feel a love, I feel a love from the heart of Abba that is just beginning to, to permeate, permeate in the culture. And do you know where it's coming from? It's coming from a yearning in every man, woman, children, all of them. It's coming from a yearning to feel something that is so much deeper than what they naturally are feeling today. And Yahweh in His grace is beginning to move into not just our country and all the countries of the globe to show them that they are accepted, that they are loved, and that He's offering them a way of life that will cause them to lose everything that they had before, but inherit things that would cause everything they had before to be less than nothing. If, if, if you compare what I have now to what I had seven years ago, on the outside, it would look like I have a lot less now than I had seven years ago. A lot less. However, I, it would be a lie to tell you I have less today than I had then. Whoever loses his life will find it. And whoever finds his life will lose it. It took a process of me losing everything I held on to to inherit things that he holds together alone that I couldn't let go of if I wanted to. My kingdom was shakable. My kingdom could be shaken by the wind. Whoever builds his house without applying my word to it is like a house of cards built on the sand that when the rain came and the wind came and the flood came, it fell over. But he who builds his house on the rock will have a firm foundation that when the rain comes, the flood comes, the wind comes, and it blows against that house, it will not be shaken, for it is built upon the word of God. So what we're inheriting is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Hebrews 12. The vision I keep getting is of a gold miner, of a gold panner, I guess that would be the better word, scooping up. Have, have any of y'all ever seen this? I think I've shared this before. Scooping up some dirt. And when you have this, um, this pan, I guess you would call it. I'm sure there's a technical word for it. The first thing you do is scoop up a big blob of, of dirt. So when you're looking at it, it looks like nothing. And then you begin to shake that thing in some water. And as you shake it, all the dirt begins to filter out. And what's left is a few flakes of gold. The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who found a costly pearl and sold everything to buy that pearl. It's like, it's like a man who found treasure buried in a field buried in a field, that he buried it and covered it back up, went, sold everything, bought the entire field just to have the treasure within it. So I just, I just feel the Lord stirring in us that number one, 
we could be, we could be the generation that actually, number one, makes it. But we could be the generation, the generation that humbles ourselves enough that our legacy sees everything that we've ever begged for. What, like, what, what if we could be the generation of Abraham that in almost 700 years would give birth to a Joshua that actually walks into what Abraham was promised? There, God gives us two types of prophetic words, two types of prophetic words. Prophetic words that you'll see in your lifetime and prophetic words that are directional words that you will probably never see. Judging between the two will make all the difference. So, so the Lord gave me a promise and a vision that I would see Main Street lined with people worshiping. I've shared this before, that I'll see Main Street just lined as far as the eye can see with people worshiping. Let me tell you something. If Veda's daughter or son or whatever sees that, guess what? Promise fulfilled. But, but I've got to be the one who is living in faith that says my primary goal is not to create a big name for myself or a ministry for myself or a career for myself or wealth for myself. My primary goal is to keep the fire burning day in and day out and day in and day out and trust that what he told Jeremiah is true, which is the Lord watches over his word to perform it. The Lord watches over his word to perform it. I don't watch over his word to perform it. And if I do, it's called extortion. Taking by force what I should not have yet. So I'm not going to walk around trying to extort the promises of God. Instead, I'm going to be still and know that he is God and trust that every single word he spoke, he's keeping an eye on to make sure it comes to pass exactly how he said in the exact timing that he said, exactly the way that he said. The freedom that flows from that is unbelievable that I can just be still and keep the fire burning and trust if he wants to give us a congregation of a million people, he will do it. I will not do it. And if I try to do it on my own, it will be extortion and it will not be the fulfillment of God, which is exactly why you have pastors who are committing suicide. You have pastors who are quitting five years into ministry. You have pastors who are miserable. Why? Because they took on a load that was never theirs to take. He said, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He did not say, you are Peter, and on this rock, you're going to build your church and make a good name for yourself. That's not what he said. He said, you're Peter. You stay consistent in the secret place, and I'll start building something on you. And the thing I built on you, the gates of hell won't be able to touch. So in this church... In this church, there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff that I could do better as a leader. There's a lot of stuff I could be, do better as a leader. But my primary concern is not becoming a better leader. My primary concern is making sure my fire is burning. People, I mean, people don't like that. People want a pastor that will that will just call all the time and coddle all the time and make sure everybody's feeling good and make sure everybody's doing good and I love you enough to not be that. If I was that, I would I would send you down a road you would never grow in. I'm called to be 
Papa before Pastor 100% of the time. And there are times where we have to tell Veda to do stuff that we don't even want to tell her to do. I don't like correcting her. I hate it. Which is why I don't do it as much as I should. But I hate correcting her. Amen, right? It's, It's the worst. I hate it. However, I'm her dad. And there are certain moments that I can't be a people pleaser towards her. Right? So there's twofold. As a dad, I've got to lead her, not as a people pleaser, not in whatever's going to make her feel good. I've got to lead her in whatever way is going to make sure that when she's 18 or 19 or 20 or whenever she leaves our house, she's burning hot like dad was. That's my call. That's what I'm called to do. Now, here's the flip side. What is she called to do? She's called to honor, number one. But number two, she's called to understand that he loves me. So if he's saying something that stings right now, that doesn't mean I'm going to run away and break off and go find some other father that will people please me. What it means is, is I'm going to understand that he's a loving dad. Therefore, I'm going to submit to whatever he's saying because I know he loves me and wants the best for me. So with Jesus, we've got to be the people that submit even in the moments that sting. Because according to Hebrews 12, his correction is proof that you are who he says you are. If you're never corrected, I would highly question if you are who he says you are. Probably because you've never heard who he says you are. So correction is proof of that. Let's take it down to the church level. Let's take it down to the church level. I, I am a spiritual father over this house. So if there's things going on in the house, I need you to know that every single step that we're taking, we're taking towards an ultimate prophetic place, which is not a thriving church. It is new creation. And I believe if we aim for new creation, we'll have a thriving church. But I am not sitting around thinking about how can we have the most thriving church in Columbia. Now, I I do not think about that. I think about how can we host new creation today better than we hosted it last week. C.S. Lewis, aim for heaven, you'll get earth thrown in. Aim for earth and you'll get neither. Aim for the kingdom, you'll get a good church thrown in. Aim for a good church and you'll get neither. So it's going to take me, me, and whoever's the pastor from now on, hopefully Veda next, but it's going to take, which will challenge some of y'all to think differently about women in ministry. So, um, another day. It's going to take me as a pastor, me as a pastor, making sure I hold the standard up that we've got to teach what's true, not what pleases. That's, so that's what it's going to take for me. We've got to teach what's true and not what pleases. Okay? We've got to do it in love. But we've got to teach what's true. Now, here's what it's going to take from you. This is what I'm going to ask for you because we're trying to host new creation. What I'm going to ask for you is that you and I together fight for and pray for such a unity that no power of hell in any way, shape, or form could ever pull it apart. That's what I'm going to ask for. Unity. Unity. Without unity, we are we are lost. We are a hope. We're not the church. If we're not unified, we're not the church. 
We're a religious nonprofit organization that have tax deductible income. But if we're going to be the ecclesia, which is the governmental body of God, then we've got to be unified. There are no political parties in the church. Did you know Jesus said, on this rock I'll build my church? And I guess he shall not prevail against it. He uses the word ecclesia. That's not, a, that's not a religious term. That's the term of governmental body. So I would call our Congress, our state Congress, an ecclesia. It's a governmental legislative body. Right? There are no parties in this body. We don't sit around debating whether or not you're Republican or Democrat or anything else. We are one in this body, and it's called Jesus. There's one political party, and it's called Jesus, not two. So I'm going to pray um, that the Lord would just begin to birth some of this stuff in us. And, um, and even people watching this, we get messages all the time from people that don't live here. And, and we, we really need to make sure we don't take for granted what the Lord's doing here. Um, I got a message from somebody in California last week um, that is being just completely transformed. Watches every week what the Lord's doing in here. And I hear this almost on a weekly basis. I wish we had something like that where I am. And it's not because I'm a good preacher. It's because there's very few places that are willing to just give the Lord the reins. And, um, and so I just want to make sure, one, we don't take this for granted, but two, we take this deep. And, uh, and I believe the Lord's going to spread and use it. So, Father, I pray, I pray right now in Jesus' name that even as the words are coming out of my mouth, I feel like I preach for two audiences. I feel like I preach for those who are here hearing this. And I feel like I preach for the legacy that we may not ever know that are going to one day take these seeds and begin to water them and see such a harvest grow out of the earth that what we are dealing with today, they're never going to have to think twice about. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do two things. I pray that you would persevere this word and cause it to become generational, not my word, but your word. And I pray that number two, that you would allow us to be a group of people with prophetic eyes that we see beyond the here and now. There's a lot of things that are here and now that don't make sense here and now, but make complete sense in the prophetic vision that we've been given. What if 2020, what if 2020 was not necessarily about seeing the here and now clearly? What if 2020 was a prophetic point where we begin to see what is coming clearly and therefore can put the here and now in its right context? I believe that's what you're doing. I believe in us. You're growing such a people that bear the image of God like we were designed to bear that we can actually begin to spread that image across the globe, that we can create of the same kind as it says in Genesis, that we can be trees planted by streams of water that bear fruit in every season like it says in Psalm 1, that we can be the sons of Adam that were created slightly lower than Elohim that have been given dominion over all created things like it says in Psalm 8. What if we could be those people? I believe we are. I believe we're becoming those people. And as we are being manifested in the earth, the earth is tasting the first fruit of what it means to be free from its decay. And I want to just pray with us right now. Lord, we, we come together where two or more are gathered. You are here. If we agree on anything 
we could ask and you will answer. And so, Lord, I pray right now for an end to this coronavirus thing. Would y'all just agree with me as I pray this? I pray an end to this coronavirus. It has no place here or any other place on the globe. I pray that there will be a rapid ending to this that science won't be able to explain. I pray that there'll be a rapid ending to this that logic won't be able to explain. But I believe right now, even as, as we're praying this, I believe the Holy Spirit is just brooding over the earth to bring chaos back into order that the supernatural that enhances the natural is beginning to move throughout creation to bring our bodies and to bring the globe back into its design to bring virus particles back into their design which is not to kill people I'm talking cosmic cosmic transformation Let us have a football season. (laughs) In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Lord, we love you. We honor you in this place. We thank you for the offering that people gave today. Thank you for everybody online. Lord, I pray that people watching this from outside of Columbia would just begin to feel the fires of the Holy Ghost just begin to pour into their rooms, into their secret places. Right now, I pray that you would just begin to just allow them to be beacons of light in cities that may not necessarily have beacons of light yet. In your name, in your name, amen.